Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. My guest this week is Sean Beck, one of the OGs of the Houston wine scene. Sean has run the wine program at the venerable Backstreet Cafe for the past 22 years. He also created the beverage program for one of my all-time favorite spots, Hugo's, a Mexican restaurant that took home a James Beard Award in 2017. I wanted to chat with Sean for a couple of different reasons. For starters, Sean has always kind of seesawed between cantankerous industry veteran telling young psalms like me to get off his proverbial lawn and exuberant collaborator, organizing nonprofit events that bring the city's wine community together. Similarly, Sean oscillates between the spirits world and the wine world. One minute, Sean's leading a mezcal tasting at his Oaxacan restaurant, Zochi, and the next he's hosting a winemaker for a deep dive into Rheingau Riesling at Backstreet Cafe. He's a married man in his 40s who still works the floor when most psalms have already transitioned to 9 to 5 supply or distribution jobs. It's these dualities and contradictions that make talking to Sean so much fun. The downside, though, is trying to get Sean to stay still for more than 10 minutes. He's a workaholic, bouncing between different restaurants and different tasks. You'll notice that throughout this recording, his phone is buzzing nonstop with emails, texts, other notifications. And so without further ado, here's Sean discussing how he got started in the world of wine. So I, um, I had worked at a microbrewery restaurant prior to working at Backstreet. So that was like during the period of the 90s when those little restaurant breweries were popping up. Yeah. And just because I was a curious guy, I ended up becoming the assistant brewmaster, which meant I cleaned everything and yeah. learned how to make beer. And I had a buddy who was working at Backstreet at the time, yeah. so I was getting ready to do a new job closer to Houston because that's where I was going to college at. He said, you should try Backstreet. And so when I began working here, they had a 50-bottle wine list, which was the biggest list yeah. I'd worked with ever. And you know me, I'm a pretty anal person. Yeah. So I, I just learned everything I could, except yeah. this was largely pre-internet websites totally. on wine. So I was just going to How libraries. old were you at the time? I was, right when I started here, I was just about 21. So wow. right when I was about 21. So I was like going to libraries, checking out books. I was going to get Decanter and other magazines I could totally. get my hand on. Whatever I could do to learn about wine. Yeah. And about... Maybe by the end of my first year here, so I was getting into my last year at college, I was getting ready to think about uh, studying for the LSAT, so I go to law school. Mm -hmm. Uh, The owner had noticed that I seemed to know more about wine than other people, Uh, so she'd asked me if I would help her taste and buy and and do the wines, and that's Tracy Vaught. And so I think after like a month of me like just quietly sitting there taking notes, tasting, not saying anything, we were doing a tasting and... uh, it was with Cosentino, uh, old school Napa Valley Winery, right there as you enter in Napa on 29. And they had a bottle of the Cosentino Cigar Zinfandel. And I was a big Zinfandel guy because that was like the first category of wine I really started drinking. Yeah. And so Tracy tasted it and she's like, oh, I don't like that at all. And you know me, I can't really keep my opinion in. And I managed to for yeah. like 30 days. And as soon as she said that, I was like, are you crazy? That's a perfect example of Napa Valley yeah. Flores Infidel. The fruit's going like this. The spice is there. Yeah. It's jammy. And she just looked at me. And you have to remember, this is a woman who was River Oaks raised, champion of her industry, traveled the world as a geologist, started her own restaurants. And she looked at me and she's like, oh, I'm going to leave you to do this. And she got up and left the table and wow. just let me finish tasting on that. And pretty soon after that, just kind of let me take over within reason buying the wines yeah. for the restaurant. So... So at the time, it was just Backstreet Cafe, Just right? Backstreet, yeah. Okay. And like, literally, there, was, uh, there weren't even wine groups. Like, you've been in part of uh, uh, some of the wine groups here in, in Houston. Totally. You guys Houston Sommelier Houston Association. Association. So uh, how I learned about wine, there used to be a restaurant called Daily Review Cafe down the street. Great mm-hmm. chef over there who became a front of the house person, Jeb Stewart. We mm-hmm. would go over there on Wednesdays, or, or we would go over to his house and gather together, and we would do wine tastings and watch baseball games or South Park tonight. And so that was like my first time to get to go to regular wine tastings. That's awesome. So Jeb Stewart was kind of the... Yeah, he was one of the guys that would help me a lot. That dude's an OG. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Very cool. Awesome. Well, H-Town Restaurant Group has grown like astronomically over the past little bit. Um, But this has always kind of been like your home base. This is kind of the nucleus. Well, this is the original one and it's the most wine derivative because it's a new American restaurant. It was the first one I built the wine program at, but this was the setting within, you know, 
within four years of me being at Backstreet, we began working on Hugo's. And I devised the wine program for the first wine program for a Mexican restaurant. Yeah. Can't say this without sounding a little bit arrogant, but we were setting out to change the whole dialogue. Mm-hmm. So I said emphatically, once Tracy said, all right, well, you're gonna do the beverage program for this. I said, well, we're not doing frozen margaritas because those don't yeah. exist in Mexico. And for context, what year are we in right now? We are in 2001. 2001. 2001. 2002, okay. yeah. So we're, we're in, or yeah, uh, 2001 began planning it, mm-hmm. and 2002 is when we actually opened up Hugo. So this totally. is our 18th year at Hugo. So wow. said we're not doing frozen It's old enough to vote. Yes. We're only going to do fresh squeezed lime juice because everyone at that time was doing sweet and sour mix mm-hmm. or they were doing frozen margaritas. And we were not going to do either one of those things. Mm-hmm. We weren't going to do chips and salsa set out on every table because we were making masa from scratch. We were making the yeah. tortilla chips from scratch. We were going to have a wine list, which no Mexican restaurant in Texas and none in the U.S. really had a wine program, let alone that. And we were introducing the cocktails they never had. I was the only one doing Palomas. I was the only yeah. one serving Mezcal. We were the... First restaurant in Texas to carry Del Maguey Mezcal. That's crazy. A single, a single species. So we changed it. And so what we did for the wine is I would just, I was on the floor there so much the first year, I would constantly fight that fight. Yeah. And I wouldn't let people go after the first drink. I'd be like, well, I'd always say, look, tequila before the meal, wine with the meal. And if I'm mm-hmm. really feeling up for it, a little more tequila after the meal. So we would just always offer them glasses of stuff and we priced the wine list. It was like a two. It's like a two-time markup. Just Which at the time people. was yeah. very low, and even now, still very low. So just anything we can do to encourage them, and I'd extol the virtues of drinking wine with it. I never thought it would outsell tequila, and it didn't. But as long as it was in the program and was doing well enough, because my end game was like, wine is a world-class beverage. You and I yeah. know that. Most people know it. Even inexpensive stuff. It just totally. It's why we think of French cuisine so well, and we think of Spanish cuisine so mm-hmm. well, and most European cuisine. So I wanted people to think of Mexican cuisine as world-class as well. Totally. And if they only think of it in the realms of beer or a shot or a margarita, they're going to not think of those flavors as being grand and amazing totally. and complex. And so by weaving in the wine, we were bumping up the stature of it. I got to hear your top three kind of like perfect wine pairings with Mexican cuisine, specific dishes, specific oh, wines. So the wood roasted got? oysters we do at Caracal. Hopefully we'll be back up in a Caracal soon. Um, we do these wood roasted oysters that have a chipotle uh, compound butter with breadcrumbs and a little bit of cheese yeah. on it that gets 750 degrees in the oven. Yeah. That with Chenin Blanc is amazing. Yeah. And off dry, dry. You know that I like off dry with that as opposed yeah. to dry because you got a little heat from the Chipotle. Mm-hmm. You got the smokiness going on there, which Chenin Blanc so often has smokiness. So you could do either a really nice Vouvray or an Anjou. Mm-hmm. Or if you want to be New World, you go somewhere down to South Africa and have like a De Morgan's in reserve Chenin Blanc yeah. that sees a little time in uh, Oak mm-hmm. or Kloof Street out of South Africa that does some really cool stuff. Uh, but if I did uh, Vouvray, I'd probably do Domaine de Viking, which is just yeah. an epic producer. Yeah, their Tendres and Moyos are fantastic and age forever. Yeah. I mean, Chenin Blanc, if, if, I feel like outside of Riesling, Chenin Blanc is probably my favorite grape because it does everything from sparkling to dessert wine. Yeah. It does it all well. And you could put it in oak, not put it in oak, dry, yeah. sweet, sparkling. It's just great. So that would be high on the list. Uh, I would also say with mole negro, mole negro or or the black mole, which is Mm -hmm. truly the mole that has chocolate in it, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It's the really thick, voluptuous one. So we do a version of that at Sochi, and we do Mm -hmm. the Puebla version of it, which has a slightly different spice bake at Hugo's. At Hugo's we do it with a duck leg, right? Mm -hmm. That to me with Amarone is amazing because Mm -hmm. Amarone is one of the few wines that has enough viscosity to not get lost with that thick and rich a sauce, right? Totally. And because mole poblano has all these bitter and fragrant spices like cinnamon and clove and nutmeg and roasted chili, mm-hmm. um, it leans into that stewy fruit of totally. the amarone. So you could do on the inexpensive side, Le Rogosi, you could find their older vintage 2007 amarone for like 75 bucks. Yeah. Or you could do a more modern but bigger producer, say Buglioni, mm-hmm. like does a really great amarone for like 150. But amarone and mole. Yeah. It was one of the first things I, I hitched upon when I said pairings. I was yeah. like, 
these two will work really well with each other. So that would be my Hugo's dish. And at Sochi... We should say that Zochi has an amazing selection of dishes that incorporate insects. You've got your yeah. own like individual like insect importer that you work oh, with, yeah. right? We've got worms, we've got grasshoppers, we've got ants. And we do have a mole over there that is called uh, mole chikatana. Mm -hmm. And speaking of Iron Som, so the yeah. year before we opened up Sochi, part of Iron Som is we do this little four-course dinner for the big underwriters, yeah. right? It's a one-hour dinner with four master sommeliers and me. Mm -hmm. And the first year we did it, uh, I said, I've got a surprise dish for you. And it was a yeah. pork belly dish done from what was going to be Sochi. Mm -hmm. And I didn't tell them what was in the mole. Oh, and the mole chikatana is made by you grinding up in a mortar and pester these queen ants, these dried queen ants. Mm -hmm. And so it's this very feral, exotic, wild yeah. mole. And we paired it with a Pierre Gaillard coat roti. Because like the exotic, yeah. fragrant gaminess of the mole, the decadence of the pork belly, it was amazing. Like Syrah on that mole, particularly yeah. like Northern Rhone, whether you're talking Crow's Hermitage, St. Joseph, yeah. Hermitage Roti is just great. It just kind of makes the whole dish feel wild and totally. exotic. And they kind of balance each other out. It's just, oh, I love that dish so much. And once everyone ate it, I was like, by the way, the mole had ants in it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Which I always tell people, like, don't freak out. If you live in Texas, you've been bit by how many fire ants at this point in time? So if you can wipe out a generation of ants in a dish. There you go. You should. A little payback. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest challenges can be when you transition from running one list to two. You know, once you get the hang of kind of balancing two, then maybe it's easier to go to three and to four. But initially, you said you were working the floor all the time at Hugo's. How did you kind of juggle the balls of both locations? I will make it worse for you. When we opened up Hugo's and Backstreet, not only was I the psalm yeah. and doing all the cocktails yeah. and working the floor, I was the dual event coordinator for the first year. Oh my God. So I was planning events at Backstreet, planning yeah. events at Hugo's. So yeah. you know me and how much yeah. I work and how crazy I am. So for me, I was always juggling a lot of different mm -hmm. things in the air, so it, it it just kind of made sense. I will say, there reaches a point, and it was probably... At this point, you're in your late 20s? Uh, when we opened Hugo's, before, yeah. So, I mean, this is most of my 20s was doing that. So, yeah. we didn't open up Caracol until my mid to late 30s. So, yeah. so, yeah, when we opened up Hugo's, I was 26. Yeah. And so, and I was still doing traveling, doing stuff and juggling all that. And I was working the floor about five to five days a week. Yeah. And I was just more, eventually once Hugo got open, I, I went back to working the floor more at Backstreet because I mm -hmm. could move the needle on wine way totally. more over there. But I, I didn't ever abandon Hugo's. Well, as long as I've known you and known this restaurant, Backstreet Cafe, this has been like the lunch to attend for <laughs> wine professionals. If there's a tasting going on, there's a winemaker visiting from out of town, lunch is had here at Backstreet Cafe. You look around the dining room at lunch and you'll see wine reps, you'll see winemakers, you'll see psalms that are here. Um, you've really created that culture. and I. It was out of necessity because when I was in my 20s and I was yeah. only doing Backstreet and then mm -hmm. even when I was doing Hugo's, especially when I was at Backstreet, and this is a frustration I have with young Psalms. Like when I was doing Backstreet, I was working dinners and I had to work brunches. But Monday through Friday, during the day, I was free. Mm -hmm. So if there was wine tastings I could go to, luncheons I could go to where I could sit down with a winemaker, totally. I was there. Mm -hmm. I was like, I didn't have to go, oh, that means I need to wake up early. I'm like, no, no, I get to sit down with the winemaker totally. and learn. So I went everywhere and anywhere, you know, I was always the youngest person in the room. I was always the one asking the most annoying question yeah. because back then it was more the economics of wine than like the growing practices of wine or the vineyard work. And so that was just part and parcel for me to learn. And, but once I started getting busy and having multiple restaurants, I just had to say to my, look, I want to taste with you, but come here and do it. Because if I leave the restaurant, yeah. um, I can't come back and be productive and so this is the best way and so I just started having them come to me and then they got multiple shots of the apple because it went from being two restaurants to three restaurants to yeah. four and even before Caracol I did uh, Trevisio over in the Texas Medical Center mm -hmm. for four years so I was juggling three restaurants before Caracol so to me it was a good use of their time and my time totally. and I value that relationship with distributors. Like, even if it's something that's not necessarily in my wheelhouse of what we're gonna buy, mm -hmm. I wanna know what's out there. I wanna taste everything mm -hmm. and see it and discuss it. It seems like you have, among many of the like big buyers out there, you have one of the best relationships with distributors and you know sales reps, brand managers. 
cultivating that is just through saying yes to those opportunities. You know, how do you create a healthy balance I think as a buyer? You remember that you're a pain in the ass because yeah. buyers are. Yeah. We have to be if we're good. We have. Mm-hmm strict rules of how we write our list for our restaurant, when we can buy, when we can't buy, yeah. who our customer base is. So knowing that, and knowing we're gonna get a hot shot on occasion, or totally. wine rush to us, wherever, we have to return the favor by making ourselves available to them. Because what's important to them is that they're showing you wine, that they're totally. given the chance to sell you wine. Mm-hmm. That when they have a ride with, which is an uncomfortable day with them, imagine a ride with is, they're told they're gonna be driving some stranger they've never hung around with, all day through the market to introduce them to people who buy wine. Yeah, That in and of itself is a tough thing. Imagine you have buyers who are like, oh, I overslept. Oh, I can't come today. Oh, yeah. I got to cancel last minute. Yeah. Then they look bad in front of the person they're having to share, ferry around all day. So I'm yeah. like, I always try to make it easy. I'm like, look, if I'm available and I can taste with you, I will. I know yeah. it's an important part of your job. Yeah. It's an important part of my education and it gives us a chance at least. Totally to buy something or think about buying something. And so, what they say, I say effort is 90% of the equation. So if you make yourself available to distributors, they appreciate that. Yeah. And and so you know, it wasn't always like this. They used to use me because I was ferociously honest and intense about my opinions. Shocking, I know. But when I was in my like early yeah. 20s and they would have me taste, I couldn't control what I was going to say, good or yeah. bad, about the wine. I would just say it. Yeah. And so sometimes they would bring in like people who were selling awful wines, yeah. who were expecting huge numbers in the marketplace, and they wanted them to see why A little brutal weren't. honesty. And they're like, let's set it down in front of Sean. Except they weren't telling me that I yeah. was like leaving scorched earth. Yeah. I wasn't doing this to winemakers, but I might do this to a sales rep yeah. or an importer or something like that. So... You know, I, it took a little while to develop that relationship, but I think it's just, you know, remembering that their job's hard, mm-hmm. remembering that they've got a lot of responsibilities and a lot of bosses. So anything you need to make their job easier, mm-hmm. while at the same time maintaining your integrity. Totally. Now, I mean, this restaurant has been here for over 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, most restaurants, 37 years, crazy long period of time, right? Um, most restaurants fail after, you know, five years. How have you been able to keep this wine list, you know, relevant and, you know, such a, you know, center within the community over all these years? Working. I mean, if you, like, the more you work at it, the better it's going to be. And it's never easy. At least in my experience, effort is one and then tasting is the other. Mm -hmm. The more you taste, the more you are aware of what's out there and you don't get caught up in your own tunnel vision of what wine is supposed to be. Like, if I taste all the time, like... I knew Malbec was going to be big three years before Malbec was big. I could see what was coming out of Argentina. Yeah. I could see the values. I knew Shiraz before Shiraz blew up. Mm-hmm. You could see when Bubbly was finally having its moment. And that's all because you're tasting and you're interacting with guests. And totally. so wine is a data business. I, I always tell consumers, if you interact with a Psalm for the first time and they don't ask you at least two, three questions before they make a recommendation, ignore them. Yeah, because they don't care what you like, who you are, what you're drinking, and so we always try and gather as much information as possible. Totally, and then use that for the program. So, can you think back in the, you know, couple of decades that you've been running the program <laughs> here at this location? Can you think to any pivot points that you've made <laughs> in kind of the style of the list here, um, kind of the program as a whole? Oh yeah, yeah. Because when I started, the list was 50 bottles. Mm-hmm. So the, it's a couple more than that. Now. Yeah, the most expensive wine on the list was a fifty-five dollar bottle of Silver Oak Napa, nineteen ninety-four. Oh, <laughs> I wonder how that wine's drinking now. Ninety-four. Right? It, 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 it should might, be well. Yeah. They were making some really crazy stuff back then. So I'd say within a couple years, probably yeah. within like two early two thousands, mm-hmm. ninety-nine to two thousand one, mm-hmm. the list started becoming drastically more international. Okay. Because in the beginning, I was buying California because that's what was available to me. That's what people knew. That's what consumers. Valley were Floors Infidel. That's what you were bringing in. Well, not just that, but I mean yeah, Chardonnay, yeah, yeah. Pinot. I mean, I had about two years where I wanted to like have an aneurysm because we were trying to sell Pinot yeah. in the '90s. Because I love Pinot. I'd had it. I thought it was great. I'd been to some of the vineyards, and no one was drinking Pinot back then. 
And right around the corner from Back Street is the River Oaks Theater, which was like the only cult movie theater in the like late 90s, early 2000s. So when Sideways came out finally, yeah. people were coming over here before and after the movie and go, Sean, these are people I knew. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Pinot Noir? And I'm like, <laughs> like the vein of my forehead oh is throbbing because I'm yeah. like, I've been telling them about Pinot for a year and a half. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. And so, but once I began traveling more internationally, once I went mm -hmm. to Spain and Austria and France and Italy for wine, mm -hmm. it allowed me more comfortability to talk about those wines to people. Totally. And the rise of the internet gave me the ability to research those wines without waiting for people to come to me. And so access changed the list. So the internet access opened up more to international. And the more time I spent international, and the more time I spent with people, the more you figure out, to me, like and this was definitely early 2000s, like I wanted, I kept a few big producers on the list. Like we kept Santa Margarita on the list only so I could tell people yeah, don't drink this, drink this. Yeah. And they were like waving a flag to saying, come over here and help me. Mm -hmm. But once that early 2000s started going in, I had a page on the wine list, mm -hmm. Sean's picks, what you should drink right now. I changed it every month. Wow. And it was a lot of stuff. And I details about the people who were making it, why it was mm -hmm. great or how they were growing it. And because I was student access, I could share that information. And it wasn't me lying, it was me telling the truth. And yeah. So, that was such a, a big dramatic change. And then I think, you know, I went to Pinot Camp twice in the 2000s and really upped the Oregon game and Washington. So totally. every time I got to spend more time in an area, I've been to Argentina mm -hmm. and Chile a couple times, it allowed us to go in greater depth to those and be a little bit in advance of the curve. So you'd see several times, like, I don't want to say I would throw out the wine list, but I would dial it in more. And everything was always about seasonality because we have an indoor-outdoor in the patio. Mm -hmm. And I had such small area for wine storage, it allowed me to change the list so frequently. Because I wasn't buying tens of thousands right of dollars. Right now, how many wine. placements do you have on the list, for reference? At Backtree, probably around 360. Wow. Definitely more than 50. Definitely more than 50. But yeah. it changes a lot, right? And I buy mm -hmm. all the time. And I used to have... I have an iPad now, but it used to make uh, distributors and reps laugh because I would call them two, three months after tasting something and saying, hey, do you have this still at this price, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah. uh, yes. And I go, all right, send me three cases. And yeah. they were like flummoxed, but I took notes. And if you'd totally. seen the back of my car, it was filled with phylodexes of everything I tasted. All those tasting sheets. So like, a lot of it was still in my brain, yeah. but then I could go back and I could look up and check out. And so... You know, you would just try and keep track of everything and, and pick out things. Do you use 750 or what system are you I using now? I use 750 for... a lot. I still take all my notes on my iPad and yep. I take notes constantly. The iPad was a game changer because I could type in a phrase mm -hmm. and I would leave myself like Easter eggs like summer, asparagus menu, totally. squash blossom season, and totally. boom, like pages of notes that I'd left for myself would yep. pop up. Or I could look yep. up the name of the winery or the price point. But I totally like 750 a lot and some of the other devices out there. And, you know, there's at least seven or eight wine websites that I subscribe to. Mm -hmm. um, it's the information that we have Psalms right now is so amazing. Yeah. It gives us so much ability to understand the wine. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily that we need to regurgitate to the customer because we don't. Yeah. We need to make it palatable to the customer. Us absorbing all that knowledge and then spitting it back out as like a amusing anecdote is the best way to sell the wine yeah totally. so, but it's been fun i remember one time this was a couple years ago oh i remember the period when it used to be a big deal when wine spectators top 100 came out people would call yep. do you have this do you have this do you have this i'm like yeah sometimes we did and i think uh it was the o2 or o1 uh a gigandas came out mm. That ended up being like the number two wine in the world. Really? Or from what wine spectator? Yeah, totally. So Cosme, St. Cosme. Okay. And yeah, so yeah. when the distributor had come to town with them, they had just the basic St. Cosme. And I said, oh, how much is this? And I'm like, that's like 25 bucks a bottle. I'll tell you what, I will buy 10 cases if you come down to $20, $21 a bottle. Yeah. And they're like, fine, Sean, we'll do that. And so yeah. I took all 10 cases. And then like three weeks later, the list came out and it was number two on the top one. Oh man. The angry messages I got from the distributor. And I was that's like, do so you want funny. me to apologize for having good taste in yeah. wine? That's and I great. run it as a featured wine and people were flying through it. That's like, awesome. 
you, but that's the benefit of tasting and taking notes and you figure out these things. But I think the biggest change lately I've seen, yep. and you've been at the forefront of that, is people become obsessed with winemaking practices. Almost detrimentally so. I'm, I'm so glad that we pay more attention now to how things mm -hmm. are farmed and yeah. how they're made. But there's a whole generation that is focused first and foremost on the vinification and not the wine. And that's interesting and dangerous and fragmenting at the same time. Like there are people like I won't taste it unless it's Fudra, or yeah. if it's unless it's you know native yeast, unless it's. I'm like, taste the wine and then talk about how that wine came to be. I mean, I, I find it's amazing and exciting that people care that much. But I'm always a believer that look, it's not it's not the process, it's the product, it's the yeah. wine. And if you like the wine, then you should figure out why you like the wine and why the process led to that. But I think uh, that's been the biggest change and that you have this young generation that is hostile to what their parents drank, which is very interesting to me because if my parents, well, my parents didn't drink wine, but <laughs> say my dad was drinking Romani Conti, right? Yeah. Uh, or just Burgundy in general, or, or I'm not gonna yeah. suddenly go, oh, you have terrible taste in wine. Yeah. So. You know, <laughs> but we, we've kind of gotten that way. We're like, I don't want to drink anything that my parents are drinking, which is a shame because some of our parents were drinking pretty amazing wine. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to chat with you about uh, was mezcal because I know that's something oh, yeah, just agave mezcal. in general mm -hmm. is something that you're super passionate about. You've been down to Oaxaca. Uh, when I knew we were going to be doing Higos, I had such, such trepidation about tequila because the last time I really had tequila was in college at Stanford. I was hanging out there with a buddy. Yeah, we drank a really cap crappy like mixto in a plastic, you know, 1.75. Yeah, it's one of a few hangovers in my life, and it was so painful. And so yeah. when I knew I had to start tasting tequila again, we were up in Chicago. We went to go do some research up there and visit with some people, and I scheduled some tequila tastings with some people I know. And like that first one, just perspiration going down yeah. my brow. Oh, man. But I was also like talking to them about mezcal too. And they're like, oh, we don't really have any. I'm like, well, that's that's a shame. And so began beating the drums, finding Sotol's mezcals, the few rums that were out there. Any product that was made in Mexico is my goal to use, like Kahlua, totally. Mexican brandies. And so the first year that we had Hugo's open, Hugo within the first year and a half we had Hugo's open, we had mezcal. We had a mezcal margarita on the menu. Wow. Using Montel. 2001, we're talking. 2001, 2002. Yeah. yeah. And that was a hard one to sell to people, but some people drank it. And then we, I met Ron Cooper, who owns Del Maguey, who owned Del Maguey. I was teaching a wine class at Austin Food and Wine with Richard Betts, mm -hmm. fellow sommelier, master sommelier. And so Richard and I had finished our wine class. And I said, dude, mm -hmm. there's, this is at the Austin Safari. And there was just this table. I don't know set. the Austin Safari. Like a little, they used to hold food and wine okay. Austin out there, and it's like a little outdoor safari yeah. with buildings and stuff like that. So there's this guy in the lawn with this table with bottles of mezcal, and I said, yep. Rich, I go, you want to go drink some mezcal? Yeah. And he goes, Yeah, I really haven't had much. I go, Why not? And I go, Let's go. Yeah. And it was Ron Cooper, and so we tasted through all these mezcals. Yeah. He hadn't got them brought into Texas yet. He was just out there showing them. Yeah. So I was able to get Tobola, the, the first single species mezcal. Yeah. Let, let's quickly for people that maybe don't know, what is mezcal? How is okay, it different sorry, than yeah. tequila? So tequila is a subset of the agave world, and it's specifically made with Blue Weber agave. It's allowed to be produced in five states in Mexico, most of it coming from the state of Jalisco. Uh, mezcal, which laws have changed over time, back then was thought of as a product exclusive to Oaxaca. Uh, it could be up to 50 different species. The major difference aside from the species in the area was that mezcal, the agave, was cooked underground in pits. And so it would take three days, sometimes more, to slow cook this agave before they would ferment and distill it. And that gave it a wild, rich, smoky flavor. Whereas tequila was cooked in clay ovens or stainless steel ovens above ground and you didn't have any of that flavor profile. So the way I would always describe to people is that mezcal was like, you know, craft barbecue and tequila was like roasted oven chicken. Hmm. The worst ones were boneless, skinless chicken breast. <laughs> and so back then, mezcal, you didn't really see much of. Moe was really going down to Oaxaca. It was kind of disappearing from Oaxaca because it was thought of more like a moonshine. Hmm. Like when you were down there in the market, people would carry around like clear gas containers yeah. They'd have little bottles and they'd offer to sell it to you, wow. but it wasn't really being marketed in the U.S. And in fact, even when you went to Oaxaca City, there were very few places you could buy mm -hmm. uh, bottles that were of any quality. And so 
when we opened up Hugo's, that was a big concern for me. So seeing Ron there got me, oh, somebody's finally bringing in some good mezcals. Totally. And then within a year of that time, Hugo and I had taken a group to Valle de Guadalupe to Ensenada to show okay. the Mexican wine country. Cool. And then we took a group of 35 to Oaxaca. So that was your first experience to Oaxaca as that well? That was my first trip to Oaxaca was with this okay. group of 35. And we're in 2004 at this point? 2003, or? I want to Three. say. Three okay. or four, right around there. And so uh, so Hugo and I were kind of the docents leading him around there. We had a local person we'd partnered up with. I'd even smuggled wine down there to do a wine dinner at the hotel we were oh, staying cool. at where Hugo and I cooked dinner and I did yeah. wine pairings. But while we were out there, we took them to a mezcal facility. We showed them the Mercados. We took them to a lot of the sites and scenes. And then I was doing some mezcal work on the side. Totally. Uh, in fact, it was probably it was such a strange sight back then for me to be in Oaxaca. Not for me personally, but for the yeah. people of Oaxaca. Yeah. Because I am really white by most white standards, but by Oaxacan standards, I'm like so pale. That's so funny. And I'm tall. And back then I was running, not not quite as much as you are running. Ah, well. But I was running around Oaxaca every morning jogging. And That's so they're seeing this pale white guy walk around. And like the, when we go to the Mercado, the, yeah. the little women in Oaxaca would come up to me and they would pinch me or touch me or stare at me. Really? That's you know, so funny. They were just so shocked to see me. And if I spoke Spanish, it was like like a really? little like uh, spirit was out. So yeah, we got into uh, Mezcal pretty heavy from that moment in time. And I started banging the drum and asking people to send stuff totally. there. And it, it began slowly changing. And then a couple years after we opened up Hugo, Bobby Hugel opened up Anvil, great bar yep. down the street from Hugo's. So him and his team were at my bar at Hugo's all the time. They were coming in, they were drinking all my tequilas and all my yeah. mezcals. And we were talking to Agave spirits. And Bobby got bitten by the bug. Mm-hmm. And I'm not cool, but Bobby was cool. And so when Bobby began telling other people about mezcal and Agave spirits, and you know how passionate Bobby is. Yeah. How much he knows, like bartenders were immediately noticing that. Yeah. Because Anvil was like the first place a lot of them had been where people were really doing, you know, outside of restaurants. Yeah, totally. They were doing craft cocktails. Craft cocktail so bar. It kind of helped spread the movement. So Hugo's, Beget Anvil, Beget, all these other places suddenly getting interested. And all of a sudden yeah. we had a community of people caring about quality tequilas and quality agave spirits and quality mezcals. And then that movement just took off and yeah. that benefited me because then it made it easier yeah. for me to get these products. So. Totally. And I, we should say that at the time, the neighborhood of Montrose, which now is kind of the epicenter of cool, hip restaurants, for Hugo's to be there and kind of plant that flag, you know, in 2001, 2002, and then for Anvil to open up, you know, at the time there were very few restaurants in the area doing exciting, interesting things exactly. in that part of Montrose. So yeah, I think it was, I mean it was a nice little community to change the cultures on the side of that. So in your visits to Oaxaca since, because how many times have you been to Oaxaca now? I have been about I don't know somewhere around twelve to fifteen times to Oaxaca. So in in that period of time, over those twelve to fifteen visits, how has Oaxaca changed? I oh, mean, gigantic. more I'm down there now, tall white people walking people around. All yeah. Over. Yeah. They don't gravitate towards me around anymore unless I'm in one of the small areas. Yeah. Like when I walk around a Mercado now, I just hear, Wero, 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 which is slang yeah. for white boy. Come yeah. on, buy this stuff that I'm selling. When I got in an airplane, I can literally look around the airplane and go, bartender, bartender, distributor, bartender. You're at, so it's crazy. become inundated with the white people. I mean, but their craft cocktail scene has exploded, their food totally. scene has exploded. Uh, and we're slowly getting to the point where we're putting money back into Oaxaca and their infrastructure is developing and these. You were seeing mezcal disappear because mm-hmm. their kids were leaving because they're like, I don't want to be a moonshiner like my dad. Yeah. So Vago Mezcal, pretty popular brand. His two boys, Aquilino's boys, went to go work construction in the U.S. Really? And then Vago gets launched and suddenly becomes big and he co- they come back to come work for him mm. because they're excited to see mezcal rising again. And like all these attractive young women are coming down there in the industry and they want to have their pictures taken with them. Yeah. These guys are like, nah, none of these ladies would talk to me when I was doing construction in the U.S. That's so but down funny. here, they want to have a picture with me. Oh, that's great. And so they feel like little rock stars. And so it's definitely kind of changed the paradigm. Yeah. And it's been good for Waka. I mean, which yep. is a really poor state that needs an influx yep. of money. And so... Well, you know, from Mezcal 15 years ago to Mezcal now, where do you see Mezcal being 15 years in the future? As long as we, and we're now well beyond the state of Oaxaca, there's uh, nine states, mm-hmm. almost 10, sta- 10 states at the moment that are allowed to legally make mezcal, and we're adding extra designations. If we approach it responsibly, it should continue to grow. 
By responsible, I mean responsible distributors, responsible producers, that we're not destroying the land out there with deforestation, that we're replanting these agave species, mm. that we're cultivating wild species. I think it can continue to grow. It'll never touch tequila. It's too fragrant. It's too small, right? Burgundy will never sell as much as La Crema. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Look at tequila like La Crema's and the Naomi's and the big producers of the world. Some are very good and some are just okay. Mezcal is more terroir driven and smaller scale. Mm-hmm. And so we should have reasonable expectations for how much it grow. Uh, I think if you like a really complex spirit and you want something that's beautiful and amazing and that you know a family or someone on an independent level grew it, you should drink Mezcal. Yeah. I mean, I love drinking it on its own. I love using it in margaritas. I drink Mezcal Negronis is probably my main drink. Wow, okay. Um, but it's the spirit that... What sort of vermouth do you use with that? So usually a Bianco. Yeah. So Contrada uh, makes a really nice little simple Bianco. But I'm, I play around with it all the time. Totally. Sometimes I'll do one with Carpano Antiqua. Sometimes yeah. I use Kochi. You know, I, it's yeah. fun to just play around with it. Totally. Because it's so much richer and beefier than gin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it stands up really well in the Negroni. Yeah. And, I like know, it in the last word, uh, Mezcal great, last word. Yep, great with chartreuse. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's such a good ingredient in yeah. general. Uh, it's really good if you cut it into an old-fashioned, right? Corn yeah. wouldn't exist without Oaxaca, so why not use a yeah. corn spear with mezcals? An end consumer who's looking to get into mezcal doesn't know a whole lot about yeah. it. Where, where do you start? Like, If I'm beginning with mezcal, you want to kind of start with espadine. Espadine is like... Espadine is like learning house styles. Espadine is the main species used to make uh, mezcal. It's most mm-hmm. common in Oaxaca, but you'll find it in Puebla and Michoacan and some of the areas around there. And the reason it's the most common is it's easy to farm. It matures within seven to 10 years time. It gives you a pretty good size. That's why mezcal is so amazing. These species of agave can take anywhere from seven to 30 years in the ground absorbing weather and seasonality and rain and minerals. Yep. So that's why they're so complex and amazing. So if I'm doing espadine, I get to see the style mm-hmm. of the mescalero and the terroir. And for the most part, espadines are not expensive. And I can mm-hmm. do low-lying areas, I can do some mountain areas, but I'm not going to spend a ton of money. Totally. Now, there are so many species out there. There's a whole family known as the Karwinski family, where these species of agave more or less go up out of the ground. Things like habali and quiche. Uh, and so they have very unique green flavors and they mm-hmm. may be your cup of tea or maybe you like a bigger fuller body like say Aracena, which is like a grand huge size version of Espadine that is really rich or maybe you like something super exotic and, and floral mm-hmm. like Tobola which is the first that's like the truffle of the wild agave yep. they, they go on cliffside they're not very big you have to work your tail off to find them they take at least 15 years to mature it's kind of like a rite of passage for yeah. a lot of people. You know, their children will go and harvest the Tobola plants mm-hmm. as it comes of age, as their child yeah. comes of age, right? So, uh, and, you know, you're just lucky to find these. So some yeah. of them will mark where they've come across wild species, yeah. right? <clears throat> and there's giant ones like Tepezache, which will like are 25, 30 feet by the time they're growing. That's crazy. Largo, which just looks like this long, tall, crazy plant that can get like 15 feet high, mm-hmm. three pond. One of my favorites is Hobbly, which is in the Karwinski family that to me reminds me of like the sensation of smoking a really beautiful cigar and drinking a single malt scotch. Hmm. And I love it because I can't smoke cigars because they give me a hangover. Oh man. Uh, so if I can have that yeah. sensation, it makes me blissfully happy. But eel is not really good. Mm-hmm. But what you'll find is that some of those will suit you more than others, right? Totally. And then within that, there's also the subsect we know as pechuga, which is an infused mezcal. And they call it pechuga because traditionally it's also kind of tied to the sacrifice uh, where the families would line the filter of the uh, still with raw chicken or turkey breast and distill yeah. it a third time. Wow. Now, the, the breast of meat doesn't really give it the flavor. It's just more of a nod to sacrifice. It gives it an mm-hmm. oily texture. But before they distill it, they throw in there all these seasonal flavors. It might be crab apples or peaches or allspice or flowers. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like they're doing a gin infusion and they take mm. an existing mezcal and they distill it a third time. So a lot of people go nuts for pachugas. And that's a so textural flavor. thing as well as Texture a and a fragrance yeah, thing. Fragrance. Yeah, cool. And so there's a lot of wormholes you can get to a mezcal. So I mm. usually tell people to begin at the beginning with espadine. Yeah. Uh, if you're really scared about mezcal, and this is a little bit sacrilegious to some people, start with oak aged. 
Yeah. They they think for some reason because they don't see oak down there that oak age is kind of like a modern creation. But the first mezcals were certainly aged in oak. They were created during the Spanish occupation of Oaxaca, right? Mm -hmm. Spaniards, as they were working their way up from South America into Central America and into North America, had brought stills with them. Yep. The conquistadors had their old brandy barrels and sherry barrels. Mm -hmm. And they went to Oaxaca and the locals were drinking this substance called pulque, which is more or less fermented agave that was just sitting around. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't being distilled. And the Spaniards had stills with them. And so the pulque ended up okay. getting put in the stills yeah. and mezcal, as we know it, kind of became born. And so where were they storing that mezcal when they were done with it? Certainly, yeah. they were storing it in barrels. Totally. You don't see barrels in Oaxaca because it's so exorbitantly expensive for them to bring them in. Hmm. And when you buy a bottle of mezcal in Mexico, mm -hmm. or a bottle of wine, or a bottle of tequila, they pay 48% tax. Really? That much? In state. So it actually behooves them to sell it abroad to us because they save all that money. Hmm. So that's why they don't put a lot of oak in it. And a lot of these places, like, you're literally, when you go to a mescalera's house, it's literally yeah. their house. The pit might be 45 feet away from their house. Hmm. There'll be their laundry hanging out there, their yeah. kids playing, their stills are there. So the idea that they're just going to re reach out and say, hey, ship me three barrels to agent. Yeah. But you do see oak down there. And I always tell people when they're beginning to get into mescal, oak's not a bad thing. Is there a producer that makes a really yeah, great example uh, of oak? Yeah, I think Oaxaca with a W, W-A, Oaxaca does a mm -hmm. reposado with, yeah. the, with the old worm in it. It has yeah. a nod to it. It's more of a mm -hmm. traditional one. It's really good. Delirio makes a fine one. Sikuru uh, with an X, mm -hmm. who donates a lot of his money to cancer research and works with local family. Makes cool. a really good, inexpensive añejo and reposado. Uh, and Yeho means more and more age. You're getting at yeah. least a year to three years time in the barrel. Reposado means you're getting three months to a year in the barrel. So Reposado is just like a little bit of oak and Yeho is a lot of oak. But those are all really good brands and it's a good way to turn a bourbon or rye or scotch drinker into drinking mezcal. If you're wanting something a little bit softer and like more fragrant, they do, Delbegate does a crema de mezcal, which is a little sweet. That's why mm -hmm. the phrase crema. Mm -hmm. uh, Gem and Bolt does this Damiano-infused one, Damiano of flowers, so they yeah. kind of treat it like almost like a pachuga. Interesting. But there's no breast involved, there's no turkey meat or anything like that, so yeah. it's very floral. If you can find this species, this to me is my favorite species to introduce people to, uh, it's called Cupriata, and mm -hmm. again, they will change the names because it's a lot like wine, right? Yeah. That grape variety could have 30 names as you yeah. work your way through Italy. Uh, so Cupriata is what they call it in Michoacan in parts of Oaxaca. In other parts of Oaxaca, they call it papalome. Mm -hmm. But it looks like these plump overlaid spades, like mm -hmm. leaves of it. Yeah. And it's very melony and floral and white flower and honeysuckle. So if you see a species of that, that is lovely, but it's not super common. But yeah, spend less money. So yeah. Silencio is a good starting point, right? They mm -hmm. probably make it for about $30 a bottle of mezcal. Mm -hmm. It's soft, mm -hmm. it's not heavy handed on the oak. It's fantastic in a margarita or a mezcal negroni. Del Maguey, if you want something a little more punch, their Vida is wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, Oaxaca and Sicaru, as I mentioned, do a really nice job. Mm -hmm. If you are trying to jump in with both feet in the water and want a really intense experience, I would look at Ray Campero mm -hmm. or Vago. These two make their mezcals in the same town. And I'm being loose when I say town here. Yeah. There's probably like 80 people that live around this area. Hmm. And so it's like a 10 minute drive between the yeah. two facilities. But they make high altitude mezcal with a ton of flavor. Cool. Really family owned. Do you ever find it difficult to kind of balance these two things, your love for, you know, spirits and your, you know, passion for wine? But I mean, it seems like there's so many people in this industry that do one or they do the other. And you're in this really interesting spot that you are super hyper-focused in both of those things, right? Yeah, and it became a necessity. I said when I was at Backstreet, I started as a psalm here, they had me working brunches. And yeah. how many people were buying wine at brunch? They drink mimosa. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, I was trying to sell wine, but I was getting bored out of my mind. And so I started going to Mercados, mm -hmm. the Mexican airline market. I would go to Asian grocery stores. I'd yeah. go to the farmer's market. I'd buy ingredients every weekend and I would make craft cocktails. Mm -hmm. So we were juicing pomegranate juice before Oprah ever talked about it. Oh, we were man. making Negronis. Yeah. I used to try and make naked Bloody Marys yeah. with heirloom tomatoes where I would strain them through cheesecloth. Oh, cool. So every week I was doing yeah. these and I was learning about spirits and like we were like the first place forever in Houston was serving craft classic cocktails. And so mm -hmm. it just became part of my norm. And then when I was working on Hugo's, yeah. I developed it. 
I mean, I love wine, and I mm-hmm. want people to drink wine, but it doesn't break my heart when they say I'm going to have a cocktail. Yeah. Because I know what work we put into the cocktails. And so, you know, I, I want them to consider both. Mm-hmm. I mean, probably only regret, and this is a very mild regret, because mm-hmm. I put my focus in two very different fields, mm-hmm. I didn't get great notoriety in either field. Like in Houston and in Texas, I'm pretty well known. Yeah. But my name nationally, despite being in the business for 20-some years, you don't say mezcal and think, oh, Sean Beck down there in yeah. Houston. Like, you know how often they call me? For a discussion on agave spirits in a national magazine, almost never. They'll call the new 24-year-old bartender in Austin or something yeah. like that, and and I'm fine. I made peace with that long time. That's really the only downside to me being like a jack of all trades. Yeah. Because if you're diverse, then it all it, it really just becomes an exercise of like hospitality. What do you want, and how can I make it right for you? Well, and that depending to me on, is what yeah. we're supposed to be doing. Well, at the end of the day, you've worked for the same restaurant group for, you know, you're entering your third decade with this restaurant group. For anyone to run a restaurant successfully for that period of time, run a successful program, I mean, that says a lot. Um, you look at a lot of people of my generation and there's a lot of moving around, bouncing from one concept to another, one job to another. So I... I uh, I can speak for myself here to say that there's a huge amount of respect oh, I no, have. I, for, and I appreciate it. And, yeah. and like you've, you've, you've put in multiple years at every place you've been at. And yeah. I, I do encourage it. You know, now, sometimes you're employed by someone who doesn't get what you're doing. But I almost say you have to do what you did. Like You didn't change the list of camaradas as soon as you got there. You spent several months learning their audience yeah. and then weaving in your thoughts on wine. And that's really what we're supposed to do as a song. Like, I can't mm-hmm. just step in and say, this is what you should be drinking. Yeah. Especially if it exists because they've already got what they like Mm -hmm. and you're the new thing. Mm -hmm. So you got to figure out to get your way in there. And so it, in a time like this, that's the one thing that's right now, I'm, you know, with all this COVID disaster, so many people know me in Houston that they can call me up and say, Hey, here's my budget. Pick me out stuff. We should say that you're doing a really great job offering a to go program here at Backstreet Cafe, as well as at Hugo's. Yes. Um, so how does that work exactly? So, I mean, we have the list heavily discounted, 40% off, and we're mm-hmm. doing kits of cocktails and stuff like that. But a lot of people are just messaging and say, Sean, I want a six-pack, I want a 12-pack, mm-hmm. here's my budget, here's the general mix I'm thinking of, and then they just let me have my way with it. That's awesome. That's cool because I can maximize their budget for them and I can put some really cool things in there. You posted that photo of the Domaine de Joffret the other day. Uh, what was that, 2007? 2007. Yeah. So good. Yeah, I had four bottles I left. So. Oh, man. That flew out the door really quickly. And then I flew out some... On the flip side, I did some sea smoke yesterday. Yeah. Which is the entire other end of the equation from Joffret. Yeah. And that was gone like that. But I think that's the cool thing as a psalm. The more time you spend in an establishment and learning their audience and learning that chef mm-hmm. and that food, the more nuanced your wine program becomes. So, uh, yeah, and it was it, it was cool to see you go from working at a Houston, like, uh, I don't know if they knew that. We, I tried to hire Chris for the record. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> and he turned me down, but that's okay. Uh, but he did some really great, you guys have done some really great stuff over there at Camerata. But no, he was doing some really interesting things at Houston's, which is not a place a lot of people thought about having an interesting or exciting wine program. Houston just thought of as like this national chain. But you made a transition from what is a national chain to an uber geeky, really thoughtful wine bar and brought a lot of personality with a long way. So I had nothing but admiration for it and it was fun to see. Uh, so yeah, and we, we were fortunate enough to get you involved in Iron Sommelier finally last year. Iron Somme. Do you want to tell the people what that is? Oh, people Iron Somme, and, and you know, we're going to still do it this year. I've already yeah. had meetings of it. Iron Somme benefits a local charity called Periwinkle Foundation here in Houston that does uh, wellness programs and camp retreats for children with cancer and other life-threatening illnesses. And so the big event we do is uh, called Iron Sommelier, where we kind of shine a light on all the great wine personalities like yourself. Uh, in Houston for one night and they compete. They each kind of develop their great theme of what they love in wine and they share that with all the guests that evening. They pick out three wines, they kind of tell their story and people, we've been doing it in Houstonian for the last five years, so people meet up there and they get to try upwards of 50 wines and interact with like 14 of Houston's best sommeliers. And I've had for the last several years, uh, several master sommeliers that have come in to be the judges. I don't participate or judge, I just kind of run the thing. 
Uh, and then we should say that you don't participate here. because you won too many times. <laughs> so uh, I had, yeah, I was I was the original Iron Saw, but I stopped doing it and said I would switch to helping them, not realizing how much more work it is. Yeah. But on the flip side, I'm glad because I've gotten to know so many members of the Psalm community when I'm not yeah. at their bar because I'm, totally. I'm pretty busy and to see all the cool stuff that they're doing. And I, I'd be lying if I say every year I don't discover a couple new wines that I didn't know anything about it. Totally. And so that's like an ancillary benefit for me. But I do geek out. Like I said, I know how cool it is to get some public acknowledgement, mm-hmm. really for sommeliers, right? We totally. don't technically make anything. And we're mm-hmm. almost always second to chefs in the restaurant. And not to say we're a vain bunch, we're not, but it's nice to be acknowledged for like all yeah. the work you do. Because to curate and discover and write a good wine list is hard. And so the fact that we get to do this event and people get to celebrate the work that sommeliers put in. Yeah. And I always tell people like, look, a good sommelier is like a museum curator, right? We remember the name of the museum, but we don't always remember the name of the the psalm, but who do you think put that together? Yeah. They found that painting, they lighted that painting, they set it up so as you walk through the museum, you yeah. got this miraculous experience where you had moments of sadness or absolute joy or introspective that mm-hmm. was all born out of the work that we did. And yeah. so if we can put together an event where we get to celebrate those people yeah. and make sure the public knows who they are, then that makes me really happy. That's awesome. And Because I, I, I just know how much work you all do. You're getting some time with your daughter. You've got a young daughter spending time with her at home. Taught her how to ride a bike the other day. So that's exciting. Congratulations to her. That's awesome. Well, Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Um, We love this restaurant. This restaurant has been through a lot the past, you know, handful of months. You had a fire. What four or five months ago? Yeah, last late last year we had the fire, and you know you've survived (laughs) countless hurricanes here and tropical storms. A fire, so I doubt a pandemic's gonna throw you guys down. We're hoping not, but we're hoping yeah. the community as a whole gets back. I love seeing all the wonderful work that sommeliers and wine professionals have done around town. And at times, our job and career is made to feel superfluous, but there's not much more of an epiphany you get than when you're served a really memorable bottle of wine. You feel life in a way that almost nothing else that we eat or drink can give us and that's brought to uh, to you by really smart sommeliers and so remember them at this time support them at the time and when everything goes back go drink some wine awesome well thank you again sir appreciate thank it thank you chris awesome again a really big thank you goes out to sean for taking the time to sit down with me at backstreet cafe before the shelter in place order went into effect you can support sean and the rest of the staff at backstreet cafe by ordering food and wine from them they are doing takeout right now And you can support By The Glass by giving us a review and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Instagram at By The Glass Podcast, so give us a follow and shoot us a DM with any questions, comments, compliments, or concerns. In the meantime, keep washing your hands and staying hydrated. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of By The Glass.